Welcome to the Joe Carey Podcast, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Kevin Pelton. Kevin, a great writer for ESPN.com. He is also the host of the great Pelton cast, terrific podcast, uh, talking about basketball. And you can follow him on Twitter at kpelton. Quality, quality chat with uh, Kevin on this episode of the show. Uh, he, like me, is a bit of a sports orphan, a Seattle basketball fan. His beloved Supersonics now 10 years in the wilderness. Wow. It's been a while. 10? Yeah, something like that. Decade or more. And, uh, we get into the exhibition game that took place a couple weeks ago at Key Arena, the last basketball game at the Key in its current form. Kevin Durant showed up. Durant, of course, famously drafted by the Seattle Supersonics. Came out wearing a Sean Kemp jersey, which was so awesome. And uh, I'm a nostalgia type. I loved it. It was great. And so we went down the rabbit hole a bit on Seattle basketball. And then we previewed the 2018 season, 2018-2019 season. It's going to be a blast. I am a gigantic basketball fan uh, right up there with baseball. And, uh, just consume all of it. So, I mean, we went deep. You want to know about the Rockets and the Warriors and the Celtics and the Raptors and the Sixers and all the elite teams. That's great. But, uh, we talked nets and nuggets and all kinds of stuff. Really, really good. So if you're a hardcore NBA junkie, this podcast is for you. If you're somebody who likes sports and maybe I'll check it out when the season's starting also for you, uh, the season tipped off yesterday. And uh, we recorded this conversation just before the start of the first game of the season, also yesterday. So uh, really, really good chat. You will love it if you're a basketball lover. This is uh, completely your jam. So enjoy. Uh, some programming notes real quick. We got CBS Sports. Hey, I'm writing the hell out of these playoffs. Check out my work at cbssports.com. Um my latest piece, which should be up, I think, a little bit after this podcast comes up, comes out, is about Clayton Kershaw. I've written extensively about Clayton Kershaw over the years. Probably my favorite article I've ever written was about Clayton Kershaw back in the day for Grantland. Those were the happier days for Clayton Kershaw. It's now uh, unclear what to expect from him from start to start in the postseason anyway. So uh, we get into all that. And uh, also, you can check me out at CBS Sports HQ. So if you go to cbssports.com at the bottom of the page, you'll find a live, live streaming service. And you can just stream it right there or stream it on your phone if you'd like. Any OTT device uh, will do. And do it that way at the CBS Sports app as well. And I am on camera also throughout the postseason talking playoff baseball, particularly the NLCS at the moment. Uh, so lots of NLCS commentary, but AL teams as well. And of course, when we get to the World Series, it'll just be wall to wall. Uh, my smiling face looking back at you and talking about baseball. So check all that out. And uh, thank you for supporting everything that I do. I really appreciate it. And I hope you dig this episode of the podcast with Kevin Pelton. The guest on this week's show, one of the best basketball minds around, a renaissance man, a friend of the show, the great Kevin Pelton. Sir, how are you? 
I'm good, honored to be on the podcast with the best music of any podcast. Correct, because if there's anything that I could do, it is self-promotion. Even <laughs> nuking social media, I remain the best at calling attention to myself and my <laughs> so-so work. Um, you do great stuff. I want to get to over-unders for the season. You uh, put out, you know, you talked about the numerical over-unders. You had some subjective, subjective points of view. But uh, one of the things that you're known for is your affinity for the Pacific Northwest, Pacific Northwest basketball. And you've done a couple of great podcasts recently in which you talk about this on the great Pelton cast, of course. You talk about the end of the uh, key arena, that that's going away. And it's, it's an interesting time, actually, because key arena is going away. And then Paul Allen just died. So sort of a funny time as far as Seattle basketball scene goes. So I'm wondering if you can um, reflect, take us inside a little bit about your feelings. You know, you had... The Storm obviously had their great run. You go back to the Sonics. Where does, and, and of course they're trying to get a team, but Adam Silver is demurring. What is the state of basketball in the city as we sit here in 2018? Yeah, I mean, I think at the NBA level, it is still a sense of this unrequited love for the NBA that, yeah. you know, well, while Adam Silver is throwing these uh, compliments to Seattle's direction, there's no indication that there's going to be a team anytime soon. Uh, definitely has continued to throw cold water on expansion. And uh, Brian Windhorst had a piece on ESPN.com a few weeks ago that I contributed a little bit to. There, mm-hmm. He reported that uh, they're not going to consider expansion until the next TV deals are negotiated in 2025, which is a, a long ways away if you're, you know, someone a city that's already been now 10 years without the NBA. Yeah. And, uh you know, the the first step is having an NBA-ready building. That was the reason the Sonics moved, and it's a, a long, complicated thing that I explain in that history of Key Arena because Key Arena was a big part of it. But uh, now it is, in fact, being renovated uh, and, and probably even more, more fair to say rebuilt entirely. Yes. It's just going to keep the roof and the walls, everything inside. They're digging down. Uh, digging out to the south is a little bit to expand it. It's going to make it more suitable for hockey, which Key Arena was not previously built to, to yeah. be conducive to watching hockey. So NHL expansion is all but a fait accompli at this point. They'll be voting on that early December. Mm-hmm. But the NBA remains a big question mark whether they're going to follow. There are some financial challenges probably to sharing the building with an NHL team that is more closely aligned at this point with the Oakview Group, which is overseeing this private renovation, yep. uh, which does not include any public direct public funding, although there are you know some some tax revenues that are going to be redirected when the building is open, as as there often are with these sorts of things. Um, you know, a, a good time for WNBA basketball in the city, as you mentioned. The Storm won the championship yep. with one of the younger championship teams in recent memory, yep. and looked to have you know as, as long as Sue Bird keeps going, uh, <laughs> a championship years, caliber right? team, yeah, and counting. Wow. Uh, but but still, the NBA love is there. We had a, the, the last event at Key Arena was a preseason game between the Warriors and the Kings uh, a couple weeks ago that the Warriors hosted. They did a great job with it. It sold out. It was a really nostalgic event to kind of celebrate Sonic's history and the the last game in Key Arena. And uh, the, the 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 desire is still there. The team isn't. I loved the preseason game, uh, not least because when they did the intros, Kevin Durant was introduced. Kevin Durant, famously, infamously drafted by the Seattle Supersonics. Uh, it's a debate between Kevin Durant and Greg Oden. That's still pending. We'll see how that one shape, shapes up. But he comes out in a Sean Kemp jersey. And I got to tell you, man, 
I feel affinity for Seattle Supersonics fans and Hartford Whalers fans and fans of that ilk because my team, I don't, people, maybe people aren't familiar with this if they've listened to the show. I actually, uh, really like the Montreal Expos. It's a new, new information to some people, but, uh, big, big fan of that franchise. And you can't help but be nostalgic. And that was so cool. And this idea of having an exhibition game where neither of the teams are affiliated, it wasn't like the Thunder even showed up. I, I don't even know how that would go. That would be complicated. Oh, boy. Right. But but to celebrate kind of a third-party team, this is what's been happening in Montreal now for years where the Toronto Blue mm-hmm. Jays come back. They have these exhibition games. 50,000 people show up, and they're into the Blue Jays, but they're mostly wearing the tricolored caps and, you know, Andre Dawson jerseys and whatnot. H- how does that sit in the city of Seattle of that the NBA affinity is a thing of the past? Is it something where people remain hardcore NBA fans? Do they glom onto another team to root for? Do they just live in the past and, and just have their debt left shrimp, you know, onesies on their children? <laughs> How does this go? Because I know that in Montreal, and I moved back here about a year ago, it's complex. You know, it's, it's visceral, it's real, but it's complex because we're talking about ghosts, basically. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a piece like the Mariners. I think this was uh, five years ago. Now I did a piece for more than that, actually. Actually, did a piece for page two when they held a night, and it was like it's weird that it has to be this other team that hosts this because of the fact that you know uh, history is it's actually this living collection collection and living breathing collection of human beings and all these memories, but there's no longer really a place for it. And I'm sure it's similar, you know, in Montreal. And I. I think the, you know, talking to different people, it, it's a range of emotions from some people who still can't watch the NBA more than 10 years later to people who have adopted other teams. Uh, I know the Blazers say that, you know, outside of, I think it's outside of the city of Portland, like their second highest single city for single game tickets is Seattle. Wow. If I recall correctly, this was a few years ago that I saw that stat, but it, it's kind of a lot of people go down to Seattle or to Portland, which is the trip that I make on a regular basis to cover games. Yep. Uh, and, you know, I think when Kevin Durant left the Thunder and went to the Warriors, that, that, you know, people still love Durant. He struck, struck all the right tones emotionally in this return, including that camp jersey that he wore during introductions. And so to have him no longer be associated with the franchise that had moved from Seattle, I think made it a lot more okay for people to root for him on the Warriors. Actually, technically it made it a lot less okay, sir. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Listen, you come on the Joe right Terry podcast, that. this is what's going to happen. You're going to get Expos references and bad jokes. So, um, I want I want to make a case for a kind of fandom, and that is orphan fandom. You know, you talked about that you can adopt other clubs. The Warriors are a very rootable team, not just because of Durant, but are you a Boogie fan? Are you a Curry fan? There's all kinds of reasons to root for that team. They're very beautiful to watch, their style of play. But I would submit to you that it's very liberating to not be a fan of anybody per se, but to root for players or storylines or styles of play or what have you. That's what I've become in baseball. Now, it's very conducive, obviously, as somebody who writes about baseball nationally for a living. I don't have to worry about it. You're biased. You love the Yankees or you hate the Astros. No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't care. I like everybody. I hate everybody. It's all the same to me. Um, who decided that because you were born in Kent or Renton or Everett or the U district or whatever. Oh, uh, now I got to suffer. Now, oh, I got to deal with uh, the, the Schultz family and OKC and this drama. And now I got to be an orphan. Da, 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 and I hate this and I love this. And now I'm going to root for these guys. Why? 
Why don't you just really appreciate Gary Harris coming off a screen and also what the Nets might do in seven years? Like, why can't that be a thing? Why does fandom have to be localized? Why can't we just enjoy the sport? I'm having a great time enjoying baseball in that respect. And for that matter, I'm pretty much like that in every sport. Because although I grew up a Celtics fan, it wasn't anything regional. So I just decided I'm going to like everybody. My hockey team sucks, so I don't even care about the Habs anymore. I just like sports now, and it feels really damn good. You know, I often, one thing I often think is that when you're a fan of a specific team in sports, if all you're getting out of it is just the winning and losing of that team, you're really just playing an emotional lottery. That's yes. all you're doing. Yes. Um, it, it's interesting that you use the term liberating because, you know, in basketball, we have had, uh, Free Darko popularize this concept of liberated fandom, which mm. is, as you, you know, described more about players, individual players, styles of play, you know, teams that coalesce, then yes, where you happen to be born or the team that you, you know, picking a team in your childhood and rooting for that team all your life. And I feel like, number one, I think the NBA is probably the best league for that sort of thing, at least among the big four leagues in the U.S., because of the fact that it is so star centric and now those players change teams so much that, you know, if you're a fan of Kevin Durant, you're mainly a fan of him when he goes from the Thunder to the Warriors. That's not as big a deal for you as it is if you're a Thunder fan and all of a sudden he becomes the enemy. Yes. And then also league pass, the way the schedule is set up, highlights, all of that I think makes it very conducive. And I think there's also, I think there's a generational element to this. I mean, I think that to some extent this notion that, you know, you grow up, you root for your hometown team, it's starting to dissipate a little bit. Mm. Uh, it feels like among the younger generations that they're just adopting whoever the hot team is. And maybe all those kids will stay Warriors fans because of the fact that they love Steph Curry, you know, when they were growing up and he signed their jersey or whatever it was. But maybe they're just going to move on to whoever else becomes the next hot team in five years. I think it reflects not only the the nature of leagues and, and it becoming player centric, but frankly, the nature of society. Our parents and grandparents grew up in, you know. Bowling Green, Ohio, and they were going to stay there their whole lives, and that was going to be it. And now it's, oh, i got to take this job, and i got to go over here, and life is more transient. Jobs are transient. Situations are transient, and it can lend itself to all that. So I'm with you on all those fronts, and I, I like that uh, possibility. I want to shift gears and talk about style of play. Because you started to allude to it. And by the way, shout out to Nathaniel and uh, the whole Free Darko crew. we got to give them uh, props, even though it's been years and years. If you have not read any of their stuff, just Google Free Darko books and, and just go pick up the book. It's just it's outstanding and the artwork is phenomenal. And uh, I think those of us who consumed Free Darko when it existed will always appreciate their place in the basketball sphere. But talking about style of play, so we talked about the Warriors and they're being aped, right? I mean, this is everybody's trying to copy that style now. It's about speed. It's about fluid motion. Uh, the Lakers get LeBron, but fundamentally Walton is a you know Warriors disciple, and you're going to see Kyle Kuzma play this way and Caldwell Pope, and they're all going to have the same style, and everybody in the league is going to do this thing. And whenever everybody's zigging, I'm look, lurk, looking to see how people are going to zag. And uh, I went to a game in New Orleans in January. And that was the game in which Boogie became the first player since Will Chamberlain. I believe it was to go 40-20-20, if I'm not mistaken. It was like a triple overtime game against the Bulls. And not for nothing, but my uh, then uh, girlfriend slash fiance, now wife, Amy, that was her first NBA game. We had incredible tickets given to us by a friend. Really, really good. It went to triple overtime, and Boogie put a 40-20-20 on the board, and the brow was playing too. And she looked at me and said, 
are all NBA games like this? I said, yes, they're all exactly like this, exactly this good. It was so fun. But I looked at those guys together, and of course they've since been broken up, and I just said, well, gee, can we run this back for five years? Because maybe this is what's going to do it, that even though they have weaknesses and we didn't quite know that Drew Holiday would break out the way that he did, and you know they didn't have Miritich at the time, or that maybe they did, but he hadn't fit in as well. But you couldn't envision necessarily a path to get from A to B. But whether it's them... You know, Utah has Gobert and Favors. Those are two twin towerish guys. Or maybe it's another team we haven't expected. Could it be that that is what breaks up this kind of thing? Or is it, oh, the Celtics are the new great because they got Hayward and Tatum and Brown and this guy's a wing and this guy's a wing and this guy's a wing and it's just going to be wings forever because nothing stays the same. Styles change. So I'm trying to jump ahead to the next thing and see what style could be the one to challenge Golden State. And I'm wondering if it is having to supernaturally talented bigs. Maybe it's having three supernaturally talented bigs. <laughs> that, that would be an impressive collection. Yes. I mean, the, this time a year ago for ESPN season preview, Tom Haberstroh and I did, did some work looking at, you know, what kind of lineups had been more effective against the Warriors than you'd expect based on their overall success and that sort of thing. And, you know, we, we did some, find some mild evidence that the bigger lineups ha, had in fact been more effective against the Warriors than you would expect. Yep. And, you know, kind of along the lines of what you were thinking. But, uh, the, the, the single biggest factor as it turned out it was, you know, teams having players who can be above average contributors. I think this was relative to their position at both ends of the court. Mm. And that sort of played out because, you know, the team that came out best by that measure going into last season was the Houston Rockets, yes. who, uh, then took the Warriors to seven games, had home court advantage in the conference finals. And, you know, who knows how different that series might have played out had Chris Paul's hamstring not gotten injured. Although I'm, I'm obligated to note for Warriors fans that who knows how different the series might have played out had Andre Iguodala not been injured earlier yep. on. So. So, you know, both of those came into play uh, to some extent. I, I mean, I, I think what was interesting about the Rockets is that they were playing this. They were playing on the Warriors' terms in terms of size. They were playing a lot of small ball lineups, and their best lineups in that series often included PJ Tucker playing center in a very similar size to Draymond Green, if not providing the same playmaking. Yeah. But they still were going at it in a different style. Which was ISO. a lot of yeah, a lot of isolation yeah. basketball. And I think, you know, my big concern coming out of that series is was every team going to start looking to play isolation basketball? Because also another thing we saw in last year's playoffs, the Rockets and Warriors, the Rockets, one thing they did was from day one they switched everything. Mm-hmm. Because their logic was we're gonna need to do this against the Warriors, so we're not going to like just try to start doing this against the Warriors, which is something Cleveland has done the last few years in the NBA Finals with not great success, particularly no. er, particularly early in the series, because yes. it takes a lot of communication to do that. It it is definitely a thing that takes practice. So that was very successful to, for them. We also saw a lot of switching in the Eastern Conference Finals between Boston and Cleveland, uh, and it just started to seem like okay, the only way you're going to be able to defend at that level of the playoffs is to switch, and the only way you're going to combat that is with isolation play. And so one thing I think is going to be really fascinating to watch this year is, number one, how many more teams start switching in response to that. But then number two, I think something that's going to be really interesting that I wrote about last week on ESPN Plus is the NBA quietly, one of their points of education for referees and and for coaches and players and fans coming into the season is freedom of movement and specifically movement away from the ball. They've already cleaned up a lot of at the point of contact, uh, the, the hand checking that used to exist 
on the player with the ball. But what hadn't been, what had kind of deteriorated is the amount of contact and grabbing and holding that was allowed off the ball with guys coming off of screens and, and that sort of thing. And if you kind of take that away, it makes it harder to combat switching defenses with anything but isolations. If you do allow players to move more freely off the ball, I think it makes the rule man more effective against the switch because he can't be held. It makes guys coming off of screens for jumpers more effective. And that's it. What's interesting about this is... So it helps anything. the Warriors is what you're it saying. Helps, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, good. Just what we need. The, the other way in which the Warriors are kind of different, teams, teams have been aping the Warriors in terms of we're going to try and play yeah. fast and smaller and shoot threes. But the funny thing about the Warriors is it's a league where everyone plays pick and roll and they don't actually run that much pick and roll. No. They, they're 29th in it in the league. Philadelphia is the only team last year who did it less. And so all of those actions, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if those come back into vogue with more freedom of moving away from the ball. Uh, Houston is a great departure point. It was going to be exactly my next point, which is they won 65 games last year and, uh, punching it in the computer, they're projected for 51 this season. Fascinating, you know, because you look at their stars, they're still there, Harden's still there, Paul's still there, the emerging Clint Capella's still there, but they lose Ariza and Mba Mute, who are certainly, by reputation, great defenders. Are they as good as they were three years ago? I don't know. But they're being replaced by essentially Carmelo Anthony, and granted James Ennis, and Carmelo Anthony is a plague, and, and oh my goodness, the worst defender ever, and a selfish ball player, and this is going to hurt them, and this is going to hurt them. And another team, it strikes me as interesting when it comes to projections, is the Oklahoma City Thunder. Not as dramatic a movement in terms of last year versus this year, but as you write in your profile, an additional patella procedure for starting wing Andre Roberson, now expected to miss the first 30 games after having a loose suture removed from his left knee, caused Oklahoma City projection to drop by 1.1 wins. The Thunder won at a pace of nearly five fewer games over the full schedule after Roberson's injury. I am a better offensive player than Andre Roberson, and I peaked in a Jewish high school. Uh, that is amazing to me that a guy can, like, with his skill set, can be worth five wins, and that you can basically take Ariza and Bamute. Ariza used to be a better offensive player, not so much lately, and, and Bamute is certainly nothing special. Replace him with Mello, and a few years ago I would have said, well, that's good, and now it's dramatically terrible. So the way that I want to frame this question is, Quantifying defense, you know, quantifying defense in every sport. In football, we focus on the quarterback. In baseball, we focus on the home run hitter, even though we have metrics. In hockey, to the same extent. And basketball. And we say, oh, well, defense is so important, defense is so important. If Andre Roberson went on the free agent market, let's say hypothetically that he was 25 years old. He's an unrestricted free agent right in his prime with five or six peak years to go. Would he get $70 million or whatever the money you should get for somebody who contributes that many wins? Or would teams still look at it and say, I know, no, it's going to come at a discount because it's Andre Roberson and he's not that fancy. We know this is important, but do teams now put their money where their mouth is or are those commodities still coming at a discount and we still haven't quite matched up the numbers to the reality of the market? Well, I think the Rockets are going to be a fascinating test case for that because a lot of what they seem to believe is that – Yes, maybe there's some drop off from Trevor Reza to James Ennis, but it's not nearly enough to justify the fact that Trevor Reza is making 15 million this yes. year and James Ennis is making the mil- the minimum, uh, which they, they don't get prorated. So, uh, for his case, it is 1.6 million. Gee, and wow. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, 
I think that that is I think that it can both be true that the difference between them is not that great. It's a very money ball like Oakland yes. philosophy like this. This free agents leave is too expensive for us. It's different because the Rockets actually do have an extremely high payroll. That's why he's too expensive for them. Not that is in Oakland's case. They're not able to spend money in the first place. But, uh, you know, I think that it can both be true that Ennis is going to be a way better value at his salary yep. than Trevor Reese is going to be at his salary and that that difference is meaningful. Maybe not even until the conference finals. If you play the Warriors, if you get to that point where, you know, Ariza was the guy who was defending Kevin Durant and he's just bigger and longer than James Ennis is. And at some point you can't really replace that, you know, cheaply at least. Um, I, I, with Houston's projection in particular, I, I think it is the departure of Ariza and Bamute is a factor in that, but I think it's probably more a case of just regression to the yeah. mean where it was going to be tough for them to play at that level. Uh, again, this season, even if they had brought the same group of players back, uh, another year older, you know, most of these guys past their prime, Chris Paul in particular, well past his prime. So you would expect them to be a little worse. And then I think the league will be a little more prepared, especially as I mentioned earlier, uh, the switching, if more teams do that, it's not as much of a novelty that the Rockets do it. And one of the ways they were successful, and they've talked about this, there was a good piece by Jonathan Fagan in the Houston Chronicle, mm. I think last week talking about it. One of their rules last year of switching was we grab people as part of the switch to keep them from getting free and, and getting away, Can't you know, making it more difficult for them to switch. And yeah, it's gonna, that's gonna be a challenge for them. So they're gonna have to adjust it. I think that will affect them a little bit. But, uh, they are a fascinating test case for that reason. In, in terms of Robertson, uh, I, the one thing I would say, yeah. Is that, uh, part of, part of it is probably as, as much as is about Robertson's defensive value, and I think he is one of the very best defensive sure. wings in the league. It also was partially a function of the fact that Oklahoma City just doesn't have very good replacements for, for him. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, they used Alex Abrines, uh, Terrence Ferguson last nope. year as a rookie. Nope. <laughs> uh, now they've added Hamadou Diallo, who has looked pretty good in the preseason yep. as a second round pick out of Kentucky, but, it was expected to be a project. They also have Timotei Lawawu Cabarro, who they got from Philadelphia in a three-team trade. But, you know, none of these guys, you're not, you're not plugging in, you know, it's not like Houston if Chris Paul goes down and you're just playing Eric Gordon more minutes. Right. You're going much deeper into the end of your bench as Oklahoma City, uh, than, than other teams would be, or if they, than they would be at other spots. So I'm looking at your uh, subjective wins prediction, predictions, which you put up uh, earlier today on Twitter. Kay Pelton on Twitter, by the way. A very good follow. And these are some boring-ass projections, man. I'm looking. <laughs> where is the drama? Where are the Bulls with a five seed? Where is the Nuggets missing the playoffs despite all the hype? This is, you know, if I had to close my eyes and say, where are Kevin Pelton predictions going to look? And I'm saying this, of course, with love. But... This is what I would have predicted that they would be. Houston would have regression because teams have regression and Toronto, Boston and Philly would be within margin of error. And maybe Milwaukee can jump up and get home court in the first round. And you know, Utah is going to be where they, I mean, this is chalk. Give me something where even though you've made your predictions and, and definitely follow Kevin, but give me something weird. You know, San Antonio missing the playoffs is not that weird because they lose Kawhi. Uh, you know, their point guard, I think, is currently Kevin Pelton at this point. Give, <laughs> give me something. Give me a Dallas makes the playoffs or, I don't know, Indiana. Oladipo's a fraud and actually they're going to miss the playoffs. Give me something that, that could happen within the realm of possibility, uh, that would surprise people. 
First off, you, you don't think Toronto over Boston is a hot enough take? Maybe I, I you know, maybe you guys, okay. Canada, maybe you guys in Canada think that, but uh, <laughs> you're south of the border. That's good well. I listen, pretty. I like the bench mob. I like Toronto. I think they're a very good club. I think people are sleeping on them. If Kawhi is as healthy as he can be, he's like an 18 win player or something. So yeah, I guess I guess it is a little bit of a hot take. So okay, well, we'll give you the Raptors. That's fine. And, and also, the Lakers at 44 wins is is pretty low relative because it's, it's, I mean their line is 48. Okay, let's and, ta- let's tackle the Lakers then because LeBron it's. It's almost like a given, like people are really talking about 50 for the Lakers, and they do have other good players. It's not like they're bereft. You know, there's uh, what I like to look at in sports, any sport. I mean, I focus on baseball. I'm looking for youth. You know, the Milwaukee Brewers are where they are, and it's like a bunch of young guys got good, and that happens. Houston became good because a bunch of young guys, eventually young guys break out. So you look at Kuzma and Ingram and Ball and everybody else, and it's not out of the question that these guys can take leaps. Second year, third year leaps, these things happen. So it is kind of low to see 44. Between the LeBron optimism and the belief that young players get better, is it just that the West is so brutal that they're going to struggle to be better than New Orleans and Portland? Or is it that LeBron isn't all that? Like, why do you have them so low? I guess that is that, – that's a, that's a warm take. I like that one. Uh, yeah, and particularly the 41 wins they're at in the RPM projections. Yeah. Uh, warmer, warm enough to, uh, to attract the attention of a number of Lakers fans when those originally came out. Why uh, people are like, bothering you with projections I, and they're saying that you're too high or low? Social media has negativity. Uh, Kevin, how, this cannot be. I don't believe First it. off, no, no one ever says I'm too, too, uh, too high on their team. That almost never happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I yeah, I, I think one of my concerns is, Number one, how are the, how is Luke Walton going to balance that youth against the fact that they went out and signed Rajon Rondo, yep. Michael Beasley, Lance Stevenson in free agency this summer? Like if they, if their free agency had gone slightly differently, if they had signed Tyreek Evans, uh, I think was the guy I was really hoping that they would get yeah, after they got shooter, LeBron. Yeah. yeah, someone who can play both on and off the ball really would have been a good fit with their young talent, but you know, not so good that you're kind of benching guys for him and in, in just one player. Like, you know, then I might feel much better about the Lakers as a team that could get into that mix for four or five in the West. But uh, you know, now the question is, is Walton gonna be obligated to keep playing these veterans if it becomes clear that the young talent is better? Is there gonna be a generational conflict in the locker room? We've seen that on teams before where, you know, kind of it's the veteran guys pitted against the young guys and they start complaining about the young guys' habits and they're not serious enough. And does that split things? I think those are concerns for me. Uh, the Lakers look like they're going to be really phenomenal in transition. JaVale McGee is a finisher. They've got a bunch of different players who can bust out and transition, handle the ball, create for other players. That's not something LeBron has really had is, with his teammates since Miami, I would say, and, and Dwayne Wade. So, you know, that'll be fun. But when you get them in the half court, I think their lack of shooting will be somewhat of an issue. Uh, Josh Harton and Contavious Caldwell-Pope are pretty good. And I, I have high hopes for Lonzo Ball shooting a decent percentage from three this year, okay. just taking better attempts and, and improving. We saw some improvement over the course of his rookie season. But, you know, the other aspect of it, if – you know, they are, as you mentioned earlier, they're playing Kuzma as center, uh, alongside LeBron because of the fact that they have a relatively weak center rotation. And, uh, those lineups are going to be really fun on offense. They're probably also going to give up a ridiculous number of points yeah. on defense because there's just no rim protection in those lineups. So all of those, I think, are reasons that, uh, you know, I think that the Lakers are, is likely to be in the low 40s as they are in the high 40s. So let's go over to the Toronto pred- prediction because if you look at if you pretended that there was no storyline that it wasn't 
Kyrie and Hayward coming back, that the process wasn't blossoming every day as we speak, and you just you you were an alien, and you looked at last year's standings, <laughs> and you said, well, Toronto finished first, and the Celtics finished second, and the Sixers finished third. Toronto won 59 games this year. You're saying they're going to win 57 after they acquired, what, one of the six best players in the league if Kawhi's healthy? You'd say, all right, yep. that makes sense. But the wisdom has gone so far in the other direction because, of course, Simmons and Embiid are going to be first-team NBA. And, of course, Hayward and Tatum and Brown, they probably got guys in the D-League who are going to step in and average 20 and 10 and from the wing. They just have wings coming out all over the place. So is it just getting away from narratives and looking at data and saying, hey, guys, the Raptors were really good last year. They were, you know, plus 7.8 point differential. They were the best team in the East subjectively. You, you can certainly make that case. And they probably improved their team. And, oh, by the way, Van Vliet and Wright and Siakam and Anthony and all these guys are probably going to get better because they're all 22. Is this just a data call? Because, actually, if you didn't read the newspapers or whatever the newspapers are today, you'd say, sure, that makes a lot of sense. Like, from a data perspective, I can totally understand this pick. I, I th- you know, I think it was what's interesting about the Raptors is as high as I am on their chances of finish, finishing first in the East, assuming that Kawhi is reasonably healthy. Yeah. The the funny thing is, like the RPM projection for them, it's actually slightly below their over under, which I think is fifty five and a half. Okay. Uh, last I checked, it's more kind of a statement on on Boston and Philadelphia to some extent than it is on Toronto. I mean, it's partially also just that the, those projections tend to be more conservative even than the lines are. So, yeah. you know, the the best team in RPM is going to generally have a lower win total than their line. But, uh, you know, I, so I don't know if there's necessarily skepticism about Toronto, but I also don't, don't know if, you know, probably enough people are picking them in the playoffs given that, a, LeBron is in the Western Conference, and he yes. was the great tormentor of them in the playoffs. And B, a lot of their issues in the playoffs were that DeMar DeRozan wasn't efficient offensively a lot of the time and was a defensive liability. He wasn't on the court for them in the fourth, their most successful fourth quarters against yeah. Cleveland in the conference finals. And now you have potentially gone from him to, as you said, one of the six or seven best players in the league in the world, if healthy. Uh, and, you know, maybe even potentially, I think there was a case two years ago that he was the most valuable player in the league during the regular season. And then low key, you know, as much as you talk about Boston's wins, what one of the thing I loved about that trade for Toronto is them getting Danny Green just thrown into the yeah, field. Yeah, he's a player, three and D. Yeah, I mean he like Ariza, you know, not quite the player that he was a couple of years ago, yeah. but you know, for him to be arguably, you know, your th- you probably your third best wing, I guess you'd say after after Kawhi and OG and you know, but you feel yeah. really good about that, especially when you've also got C.J. Miles and DeLon right on top of it. Yeah, no question. All of those things, and and uh, I feel like there's just a little bit of of disrespect or whatever. So it'll be interesting to see how the Raptors fare. I also want to ask you about the Nuggets, and I, I don't live in Denver anymore, but I spent six years there, and I watched this thing being built. I had Tim Connolly on my podcast, uh, what a few months ago. He was fascinating, and you could see this being built. And there aren't many teams in the NBA that I can think of where their offensive and defensive projections are so far apart as they are in Denver. Like, it's just a given that these guys are offensive maestros led by the guy we're going to talk about in a second. And it's a given that they can't defend worth a lick, like at all. And that's such a funny thing in today's NBA because we really are focusing on defense. Everybody's hyper aware of the Rockets dilemma and all this stuff. And here's Denver. And I don't think it's on purpose. Your franchise player happens to have the skills that he has. But there's such a wide gulf between their two skill sets. If their defense was as good as their offense, 
I, they'd be almost as good as Golden State. I mean, it's just such a fun offense. And if Murray takes another step, wow, that's a really, really fun team. So I guess the way that I'll, I'll break into this question is, is to ask specifically about Nikola Jokic, who's definitely one of my favorite players. I just can't think of anybody like him. This is what I imagined Sabonis was like before he actually came to the NBA. You know what I mean? Like prime Sabonis where he could do everything. He could shoot threes. He could take you in the post. He's the best passer you've ever seen. Uh, bigger than anybody else. Smoked cigarettes, you know, wasn't necessarily <laughs> in, in tip-top shape, but just wow, such a such a weird, such a different player. What do you make about having a guy like that as your focal point, as opposed to a LeBron, as opposed to, um, you know, to Kawhi, a real obvious two-way player who fit the mold of the modern NBA superstar? I, I don't know how to evaluate a team like Denver because it's just such a different skill set we, that we don't usually see from that position. And the other thing about it is just kind of the question of how valuable a center can be in the NBA circuit 2018. Absolutely. Yep. So one thing I wrote about before the draft heading into the off season was, you know, for a long period of time, we had just kind of assumed in basketball that replacement level was more or less the same across positions. And, you know, if, if there were just happened to be more wings, you know, wings than there were centers. Well, okay, you just play more wings because it's not like baseball where, you know, the positions are relatively nope. fixed or football and, uh, you know, there, there's a lot more fluidity in position, but it turns out that that just doesn't hold anymore because of the way that the game has evolved and the fact that centers are playing fewer minutes and being asked to do somewhat less, but also doing it so much more effectively because of the fact that the conditions are, there's so much great spacing for them to be effective inside, uh, because of the fact that the replacement level, because of those facts, the value of a center that you go out and sign for the minimum is way better than the value of a wing that you go out and sign for the minimum. And you kind of have to account for that. So there's also this question of how valuable any center can be when the, the minimum salary or cheap center is, is so, so, uh, useful. So all of that kind of goes into thinking about the Nuggets. Uh, I will say like stylistically, I think there's a comparison to be made between Jokic and Kevin Love. And, uh, yeah, I think Ben, bit. I think Ben Falk may have made this on cleaning the glass. I can't remember if this came up with him or, or that was just my response to it, but it's kind of a, a similar thing where they are bad, really bad at the obvious parts of defense and better at the less obvious parts of hmm. defense. So for both of those guys, boxing out is one of those factors. Jokic tends to foul more than Kevin Love does, but I think the Nuggets foul rate is still perhaps somewhat better with him on the court. Uh, I think they, they may enforce more turnovers. Like all these other elements of defense, they're better, but they're worse in terms of defending shots because of the fact that he is not a rim protector whatsoever. And that's kind of what everyone focuses on is this yeah. parade of guys to the basket and how bad Denver's rim protection is. And, you know, I think that, so, you know, if he's just, just below average defensively for a center rather than terrible, it becomes more plausible for them to be okay defensively. And, you know, Paul Millsap, having him healthy for a full season should help them a great deal in that regard. One of the interesting things about RPM is, well, the Nuggets offensive projection is predictably great. They have the second best offensive projection. Yeah. Their defensive projection is actually close to league average. Mm. And if they can pull that off, then, you know, they are going to make the playoffs and, and probably have home court advantage in the first round. It's funny what you say about the, the unsung parts of defense. Uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember Bird in his prime, and they used to say, well, you know, Bird can't defend Dominique or, you know, any of these great, great players and forget about one-on-one. -on -one. He's not going to be able to do it, but a great help defender, and he's really heady and this, that. And I always wondered if that was a little bit of myth-making because he's Larry Bird, and we can't say anything negative about Larry Bird. 
or if it's actually true. And so the way that I want to ask this is, it feels like we can quantify everything. We're in the play-by-play era of data. We have high-powered, high-speed cameras. We can break down everything in every single way. Are there things, particularly on defense, for which we haven't cracked the code yet? Like, it feels like we could tell you what what percentage a guy shoots off of a switch from 20 feet, you know, on the left side when it's contested. In fact, I know for a fact, I'm sure that we could do that. Is there, are there any frontiers left that we haven't been able to figure out? Maybe Nikola Jokic is actually a better defensive player than we know or believe, but we just haven't been able to tell you why that is yet, because even though we're in the data revolution, we still have things to discover, or how we just discovered everything. Uh, first on Larry Bird, you want an interesting stat? Yeah, of he, course uh, I do. What do you think you're talking to? He he led the league in defensive win shares, according to Basketball Reference. No win shares metric four times. That's how. Okay, no, let's back up a second. This is important. How is that the case? How is it because he had Mikael and Paris? Is it a team defense thing? How is that the case? Yeah. So the way that their their defensive win shares tend to work is it's you know kind of the team defensive ability split up like largely based on minutes played. Yeah, it's Bill James. It's and the same then, thing. okay. Yeah, yeah, and then steals and blocks. When, and his steal and block rates were quite good because of the team the defensive aspects that you mentioned. Yep. And there's no real accounting for individual defense in there. So it it makes sense that someone with Bird's skill set would tend to f- fare better, especially when they had good defense, defenders DJ around him. Defend. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Than, uh, than they would by, you know, the eye test, but I don't know if I would go quite that far. We don't, and we don't unfortunately have play-by-play data back yeah. that far to really get a good sense of, uh, you know, what his, his on, on-court, off-court plus-minus would be defensively. Uh, but, but to the larger question, so I would say that, you know, I mean, it's tough because the, the challenge in basketball is there's these two different ways of evaluating players. And the one of them is, you know, kind of their team impact and that captures everything. And it's, you know, completely comprehensive, but it's also not very reliable from year to year because there's a great deal of noise in that data. And it's also very situational dependent. You know, a player can be extremely valuable in one situation and then go to another and it just doesn't hold. Uh, you know, Jay Crowder, to some extent, maybe was an example of that where in Boston he had this great plus minus. Yep. He wasn't the same player at all last year because he was out of shape and, uh, you know, what, uh, just didn't, didn't shoot well all last season. But, you know, then he goes to Cleveland and he doesn't have the same impact whatsoever there. So, you know, that's one of the challenges and that's contrasted with, you know, starting with the stats and starting with individual stats and trying to place value on players off of that. And those tend to be a lot more reliable, but they're not as comprehensive even now, uh, where, you know, it's just hard to figure out how to track the help defense. There's not a good stat for help defense. Rim protection we've got down because there is, you know, there are good metrics for what opponents shoot at the rim, but, you know, the, you know, effective rotation by a guy on the weak side that just takes away an opportunity that, you know, a, a pass to the post that doesn't get thrown because of the fact that you're providing help on the backside. There's, there's not a good staff for that. I don't know if there's ever going to be a good staff for that. And that's why there's always kind of this trade-off between the plus minus data and the box score data. And so that's where, you know, it may not be any individual one thing we have left to discover, but effectively understanding how that those interact at the player level is still tricky. Uh, I want to ask you, this is, it was a thorough answer. I don't, I don't have anything to add. Does this all make sense? I've been educated. This is what I wanted. Um, from a fan perspective, I want to ask you a couple questions here. So we're at the, the season, the season is going to start within hours of this uh, podcast being done recorded. 
And uh, in fact, it'll run tomorrow, so the season will have already gotten underway. So first thing I want to do is I want to ask you which player – give me a couple of uh, – or I guess if you're playing fantasy too, that matters as well. So give us a couple guys who you expect to take the next step uh, this season, guys of a certain age. Maybe they go to a different team so they can break out in a different way that are really going to make an impact. And it's, oh, you got to have your eyes on so-and-so. And it can be obvious. Maybe it's Ben Simmons. It doesn't have to be give me the 11th player on the Timberwolves. That's fine. <laughs> It can, it can be somebody higher profile who maybe we think has already broken up, but he's got another level. Give me give me a couple guys that you're excited about because you think they're ready for bigger things. You mentioned Jamal Murray. I ended up picking him for most improved player. I, okay. I think Canadian. That, you know, yeah. Uh, I think that just kind of the perception of him is going to change. I don't know if his stats will be dramatically better this year, but I think on a better team, the perception of him will be better. Uh, Miles Turner, who just, just signed a, an extension yesterday with the Pacers. I read all was about it? his core strength. He's one-legged yoga-ing all of a sudden. Yep. So that's what's going to do, because he wasn't that good last year. I thought he would break out last year. And yep, he, he was not. my pick for most improved back. last year. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened? Was, throw, he, was he just right. out of shape? Did he just have bad hips? Is that literally what it was? I mean, he, yeah, he got injured early in the season. Yeah. He was never quite right after that. And then Old Depot just kind of stepped into the, those missing possessions on offensively that we, on offense that we thought were going to go to Miles yeah. Turner and, and took over that role. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, is, was also talked about in the article, the idea of playing him and DeMontis Sabonis together this season. He's they want, yeah, they want to, uh, they want to play those two guys together. And, uh, yeah, I just think he's, he's coming in, in like a, a better spot to be effective this year than he was last year. Um, let me see. Who, who do I have who's maybe a little bit more obscure is someone who might break out this year. Hmm. There's like six Hawks who are going to break out. Torian Prince is oh, going to yeah, break out. Say, John Collins gonna, is going to break out. All yeah, Torian Prince, Torian Prince maybe already did in the second half yeah. of last season. He okay. was great down the stretch, started creating a lot of his own shots. I mean, if you're, if you, uh, you know, kind of go looking for who's going to be that like Jimmy Butler, Kawhi Leonard guy yeah, who comes into yeah. the league as a defender, but then develops the ability to score. Torian Prince could be that kind of player. John Collins, I think is great. To, to me, it's really just a function of whether he's going to get the playing time mm-hmm. this year. If he does, I think he's going to put up numbers. Um, you know, so I think those, yeah, those are definitely two other guys to watch. All right. And then I also want to ask you about, uh, and I love Lowe's annual column, always worth reading about the, uh, the league pass rankings, you know, that it, it's everything from who are the most exciting players to literally does the mascot amuse you or not. <laughs> um, but let's get the Pelton version. What are some teams, you know, if, if somebody's listening to this and, they came to this show because they like baseball, but oh, turns out that Kerry really likes basketball. Okay, I'm into basketball. What do you got? What are some teams that are yeah, maybe slightly under the radar? Again, it doesn't have to be hipster deluxe. It could be the Nuggets, but two or three teams that, yeah, you know what? They're probably not going to win the championship, but if you it's 10.30 at night and they're playing so-and-so, you should probably, or maybe 7.30 at night, you should turn them on because you'll have a good time. I, I think the Nuggets definitely qualify in this regard. Yeah. I would say Milwaukee. We haven't talked about Milwaukee at all. Yes. But they, they were great in the preseason. Uh, the coaching change this year with Mike Budenholzer going there. He's got them playing, you know, shooting way more threes, mm-hmm. better floor spacing. They did not shoot threes. They were like second to last in threes last year, right? They did not shoot threes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they added Brooke Lopez yep. to be someone who can stretch the floor from the, the center position. Uh, I think Giannis's position to take the next step. I, I picked him as MVP for the second consecutive year here, and I'm hoping that one of these years it's, it's just going to happen and everything's going to come. I, but I think they got, and Chris they got Middleton a is awesome. He's like the most underrated player in the league. He's really good. He yeah. put up 20 on you in, in his sleep. He's really good. 
Yeah, he's he's just kind of just very solid. So yeah. I think that's a team that could could win 50 games this year. And if so, Giannis has a pretty good chance of MVP. And they got a good broadcast. Uh, their court is their court is a, a is aesthetically pleasing. Their jerseys are so that's that's a team that's going to rank high. Brooklyn is another team. Wow, if you want, like, my, going deep. You, you ask, yeah, you asked for like my team that might come out of nowhere to make the playoffs. Brooklyn is that. Now, they might go the other direction because this is the first time they've had their draft pick in like a hundred years. Right. So, New coach too, right? Uh, no, Kenny Atkinson's, oh, Atkinson's been there a couple yeah, years. Yeah. And yeah. Mike Budenholzer, we're, we're giving Buden, the Bud, uh, group the love here in this yes, section. Because yes. he came from Atlanta, uh, like Buden, where he worked under Budenholzer. But, you know, they've played a really good style of play. They've mm-hmm. shot a bunch of threes. They've had a good shot chart at the other end of the court in terms of keeping teams that are getting high value uh shots and they just haven't had the talent to make it work yet. They don't they still don't quite have the talent, but they're closer this year. So if they do in fact start well and try to make the playoffs instead of, you know, trying to actually get a high lottery pick for the first time in years, then uh I think they're gonna be fun to watch. Got a chance to surprise and again a team that has a great broadcast uh, you know, they, yes. they have Ian Eagle on the broadcast yes. there and, and Ryan Ruoco. So it's like national caliber broadcasters. Ian Eagle, another uh, recent former victim, recent victim of the Jonah Carey podcast. He's fun. <laughs> I love Ian Eagle. And by the way, Jared yes. Allen, another little, uh, fantasy slash real life. You'll enjoy yep. watching him. He's a good ball player. Um, so what I'm getting out of this, by the way, is that the Brewers and the Bucks are both going to win championships this year. And it's just going to be Wisconsin. We're just going to get sick of the state of Wisconsin because of their dominance in the sports world. That, that's, I, that's what you said. I'm pretty sure. I actually had that thought earlier today when I was listening to a discussion at the Brewers and I was like, ah, yeah, really this is good. a great time for Milwaukee. Oh, it's great. I, I'm all for the, the, the meek inheriting the earth. And, well, actually, you know what? That's That's going to bring me to another question here. In fact, let's try to make this the last question. We'll try to get into a substantive discussion. Here. We'll do it. Okay. So. Competitive balance is something that gets discussed in every sport. In baseball, my God, we never, oh, it's the Yankees and the Red Sox again. And in reality, baseball has had more parity in the last 30 years than any other sport. The Kansas City freaking Royals won the World Series not that long ago. So things do happen. But for the most part, bigger markets tend to have advantages. And, you know, it's there's a certain amount of, of inevitability. And teams get the or fan bases get depressed and so on. The NBA... From the outside, people who criticize the NBA, or even internal NBA fans, they say, well, it's the era of the super team, this and that and the other. But the super teams are not in New York or Los Angeles at the moment, nor have they been in recent years. The San Antonio Spurs built, if you don't call it a dynasty, it's pretty darn close. San Antonio is not the biggest city in America. So you can build great teams outside of big markets. Is that a function of the salary cap? Is that a function of revenue sharing or is it a function of the way that the NBA works where if you draft the right guy, then you could build everything around that guy. You get your LeBron, you get your Curry, and you can make more of an impact other than NFL quarterback than any other position in your sport and it sets you up for long-term success. Or maybe it's another reason that I haven't even discussed. No, I think it's almost exclusively the last factor. I okay. mean, you know, the salary cap helps to some extent, but you still see that big market teams are able to sustain a luxury tax and, the, you know, a big luxury tax bill. And for a lot of teams in smaller markets, the luxury tax acts as a de facto hard cap for yeah, them. Yeah, but OKC's so, going for it. I mean, after cheaping oh, out for years, not anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, it turns out that uh, people who criticize the, the the James Harden trade on the basis of them not being willing to pay the tax, and I, you know, I don't know if I ever wrote it, but I kind of felt this way. Uh, we were wrong. Like they were completely willing to do it. They were just waiting in their mind for the right time to do it, and it turns out it may have been a bit too late. Oh, to you do think it. so? Because if James Harden and Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook were still uh, on the same team, you think they'd be good? I'm not sure. Maybe it's I, that seems like you know. Could, could Keep Ibaka though. Jackets. That's probably the move. I think you should do that. Anyway, go ahead. Yes, but oftentimes for small market teams, that does end up being a hard tax. And then the other thing you see with small market teams is it can be more difficult to retain these superstars. And it will be interesting. You know, we have LeBron going to L.A. this summer. Next summer, if Kevin Durant ends up signing with the Knicks or, you know, insert other marquee free agent, uh, then maybe it will be, you know, that the big markets are back to some extent. Mm. But the other thing that happens that, that is always bizarre to me is, you know, in, in basketball, Miami was considered a big market team because of the fact that players wanted to live there and the, yeah, the single greatest free agent of all time. Lower, yeah. LeBron, when he hit free agency after Cleveland and went to Miami, single greatest free agent in NBA history. And mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine there would be anyone who would be in competition with that. Mm-hmm. Went to Miami. But in baseball, it's a small market because of the fact that Wayne Huizenga didn't want to spend money, I guess. That's I right. Know. But baseball is not popular in this. That it's, it's, it's yeah. the size, the metropolitan area size does not seem to correlate to these things. Green Bay is this powerhouse in football. Yep. It's Green Bay. So (laughs) these things are – I always wonder about that and the inevitability. But, you know, maybe it's cyclical and, 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 you know, when things funnel back to the middle, eventually you will get back to the big markets. You mentioned the LeBron and Durant factor, and maybe that is what we're going to talk about. And so when Giannis becomes a free agent and Durant Mm -hmm. is 33, he's going to obviously become a Nick because, my God – Giannis and Durant and hide the women and children. It's going to be the most fun thing of all time. So maybe we will get there. It's just that I could be having this conversation with you 10 years ago or 10 years from now. And it just might be intervals in between the time in which the Yankees and the, I don't know, New York Giants, but not really. I don't know. Maybe in basketball, it'd be the Knicks and the Lakers that that will always be the default mode. We'll just have moments in which that's not the case. Maybe that's what it is, that the big markets inevitably will rule, but not all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, if you go over a long enough timeline. And obviously the Lakers, you know, any timeline beyond the past four years, you know, have been an amazing franchise oh, yeah. and, and consistently in championship contention. And, you know, the Celtics too, the Knicks don't have that same kind of history because they've probably squandered the the value of the their market with bad decisions over, over a the long period of time. The most diplomatic thing anybody's ever said on any podcast. <laughs> <laughs> probably the the Dolan family is probably better at making music <laughs> than they are at owning sports franchises. Yeah, probably, probably better at making the money than they are. Yeah, that's true too. Anyway, yes, continue. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so but but the the the. There's a randomness factor within that, and so at any given point in time, those franchises might not be doing well because of bad management or because they don't have one of those handful of stars who actually makes a difference. So, yeah, it's going to be really fascinating with both Giannis and, and Anthony Davis in New Orleans, oh, you know, boy. particularly so in his case because yeah. he can be a free agent, you know, in in uh, two years as opposed to three for Giannis who didn't get a player option. Uh, it's going to be really fascinating to watch. Can those teams build good enough teams? good enough rosters to keep those superstars around uh, for their third contract. Well, I hope so. I, I legitimately, you know, maybe I have a small market mentality or whatever, but I like the notion that the Bucks could actually not just be, hey, those upstart Bucks, but could ch- challenge for a championship. 
New Orleans, having, again, witnessed apparently the greatest basketball game of all time in the regular <laughs> season, it'd be really cool if those fans got a shot to see Davis legitimately trying to, you know, chase down Curry in two years or whatever on the brink of free agency, and then they extend, and that would be a lot of fun. So I do hope that happens, and, and I, I'm I'm excited for where the NBA is. I feel like those things have potential, and in the meantime, I have no problem watching the Warriors. They do not bore me. They could run this back for ten more years. Give me Draymond Green with a walker or a wheelchair. I think this would be a really really fun <laughs> club. So I love all of this, and I'm very very excited for the. Uh, for the eve of the season, which is coming up in a couple hours. And I'm very excited that I got to have you on the podcast, Mr. Kevin Pelton. We will read your work at ESPN.com, and we'll check out the Pelton cast, which you should super-duper subscribe to. And I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much for having me.